the following podcast includes explicit language, including, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of December 21st, 2020. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the end of college football's regular season, the teams that made the playoffs, and the ones that got left out. We'll also discuss Giannis Antetokounmpo's decision to disappoint most of the NBA by choosing to stay with the Milwaukee Bucks. And finally, we'll think through what pandemic-era changes to sports are going to stick and which we will never hear about again. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4 on David Duke. Also in D.C., my friend Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, my friend. With us from Palo Alto, another friend. I was going to say, man- I, hope, I, ho- I hope I got that same introduction. So, okay. It's the man behind the hit podcast, The Last Last Dance, Sweeping the Nation, the host of Slow Burn Season 3 and the upcoming Season 6. A man who will not call you a hoe unless it's necessary for motivational purposes. It's Joel Anderson. That's right. I, I've, uh, I said earlier in the year that I wanted to mainstream hoe again. It's part of my culture in Houston. It's a word we use. It's not, you know, it doesn't have to have negative connotation. And uh, I think with the last, last dance, we accomplished that. So thanks for listening, everybody. And supporting me and supporting me in my uh, campaign. Uh, unintentionally, perhaps. All right, um, Joel, let's talk about college football. I'm going to put some pressure on you to work the word ho into your introduction. Because <laughs> there's some, there's some ho-ish behavior in college there football. There's some ho-ish behavior. Oh, okay. I think I, can, I think I can figure it out. We'll see. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. College football's championship weekend opened with a team, Oregon, that didn't win either the Pac-12 North or Pac-12 South, becoming the Pac-12 champion. And it was a fitting result in a season defined by a haphazard, if not reckless, response to the coronavirus. In the sports final weekend, more than a third of the scheduled games were canceled, including the Sunbelt Conference championship game. But of the games that were played this past weekend, things largely went according to plan. The favorite won in every league title game, with the exception of seven-point underdog San Jose State over Boise State in the Mountain West. Shout out, Spartans. That run of chalk meant we got the college football playoff bracket we largely expected. Clemson versus Ohio State in one semifinal and top-seeded Alabama against Notre Dame after they were treated like hoes in the ACC championship game. And though some people argued about it on TV, really Notre Dame walking away with the final playoff berth over Texas A&M, also engaging in some hoish behavior, but about as predictable as Northwestern's offense. So, Josh, your favorite team will be dethroned as the reigning national champions in the coming weeks. I hope they don't act like hoes about it. Do you think the playoff committee got it right yesterday? That dethroning happened a very long time ago. <laughs> I, guess it's, I guess it's official now. But um, Bill Connolly had a good column about this for um, ESPN.com on Monday, saying that in a vacuum... 
the committee's four picks are totally defensible and that they're actually now 28 for 28 in the history of the playoff in terms of making defensible selections. And yet it's ultimately unsatisfying, this playoff, and he thinks so too, because there's this whole set of teams, the group of five teams, the smaller conference teams, however you want to call them, that have no chance of competing for a championship no matter what they do, which is maybe a unique condition in all of sports all over the world to have this group that's ostensibly in the competition that's not really in the competition. They're not in like a lower level or another league. They're there, but they just have no realistic shot of playing for a title. And we're going to get to this um, conversation more broadly later in the show about pandemic era changes in all of sports. But college football, it's like at once doing the most random shit. You have like Everybody like operating under different rules and playing different game numbers of games and, and all of this stuff. And at the same time, it's just like reverting to all of its old habits in a season when if you're ever going to put a team like Cincinnati and undefe- undefeated non-power conference team in, this is the year to do it. And that I think, Stefan, is the ultimate frustration here is that college football is just always itself. Like no matter when, when kind of given this opportunity to be like, you know what, this is a year when, you know, we don't really know who the best teams are. Like nobody really played each other because the non-conference season all got canceled. Like if you look at the advanced analytics, like Cincinnati is definitely competitive with these other teams. Like why not just throw them in there and see how they do? And like, obviously that's not going to happen. We got to put six and O Ohio state and like Notre Dame that got run off the field. They've got to have their shot. To expect college football to have done anything different. Josh is to play the role of Charlie Brown here holding the football. I mean, there's no way that they were going to put Cincinnati in. There's no way that they were going to seriously consider any of the other undefeated teams. Who are the other unbeaten teams? San Jose State. Uh, Coastal Carolina, San Jose State. Coastal Carolina. Um, There's no way they're going to cancel, you know, all these big money non-conference games. There's no way that, you know, we're going to have Ohio State only play six games all year. There's no way that they're going to be fans not in the stands. There's been stuff we never thought would happen that's happened this year. Right. But given, but in a lot of those cases, they were, their hands were forced by circumstances, whether it was local health ordinances or logic. I mean, a rare, you know, intrusion of logic. They've been forced into by logic. <laughs> well, they really didn't have much choice. I mean, I, I don't know. There was a point where having football teams travel across the country to play non-conference games was wasn't even tenable to them, which shows you how how drastic the circumstances sure. were. But in this ultimate moment when the most money was on the line, the only reason any of this happened was because of the money. Like they were going to leave Notre Dame out to put Cincinnati in. I mean, come on, who are we kidding? I mean, you can make an argument that three of the four teams in the finals have issues. I mean, Clemson were friggin' jerks about COVID. We're not going to make ethical, 
you know, <laughs> decisions about whether to include someone. The college football playoff committee announces Clemson will not be in the playoffs because <laughs> they, they were, were jerks, jerks about, about COVID. COVID. I mean, Ohio State played six games. Notre Dame got blown out in its last game of the season. But which four teams are likely to draw the most eyeballs to television screens on January 1st to help salvage some of the advertising revenue that college sports has lost? These are the four teams that were going to do that. Right. And I think Nicole Arbuck at The Athletic had it right about a week ago when she called it an invitational. You know, we think of it as a playoff, but this is really more of an invitational. And in that way, you know, college football largely selected the right teams they wanted for the TV programming they want to broadcast to the rest of America. You know what I mean? Like, you could argue Alabama and Clemson earned their way in, I guess, right? But Ohio State really did. They had to bend the rules for Ohio State to even play in its conference championship game, and then they bended the rules again for them so that they'll have enough players for a playoff game, right? So um, Ohio State has this large brand and huge following, though. Translates well to TV. And, of course, I mean, Notre Dame is probably the most famous college football program in the country. So if there was any way that they could get them in, they did it. And so they picked a playoff bracket that has a lot of appeal, but is it fair and a representative of the possibility and diversity of the FBS? Well, obviously not. You know, we talked about it. I'm, you know, Coastal Carolina, Cincinnati, and San Jose State never had a shot. And God forbid, what if USC had, you know, won on Friday over Oregon? That would have been another undefeated uh, major conference team that did not have a shot, essentially, at getting into the playoff because of perceptions about them, rather is a as opposed to what they actually did on the field. Well, Josh, let me ask you this. Like, I wrote about this in 2003 after Tulane went undefeated and the denial of opportunity. The way you pronounce Tulane is disrespectful. How should I pronounce it? Well, just the way that you said it. Like, how could you believe that Tulane <laughs> oh. <laughs> went undefeated? Well, that's exactly, the, that's exactly the intent I was trying to convey. You know, things have changed on the margins over the years. But the college football powers are still so entrenched that I'm su- I'm surprised that you thought that there was a better chance this year that they would invite one of the lesser schools in their eyes to this invitational, as Joel correctly describes it. Let me put it this way. Let's imagine, I'm not saying that this happened, but let's imagine that there was a conspiracy from inside the committee room. And also, we should just do a sidebar to say, how ridiculous is it? that the committee actually met in person. Right. It's like, oh, logic, here, I'm, I'm going to, this is my Stefan Fatsis voice. Oh, logic suggests they can't <laughs> travel across country <laughs> to play games and blah, blah. And so you have all these like dudes just go travel and meet up in a conference room to just sit next to each other watching TV. I mean, that must have, that is probably the dumbest thing that's happened in college football all year. And that's like a, a major competition. But they finally did, in the end, allow the <laughs> the members of the committee to stay home if they so chose, largely because Louisa Thomas, our friend, was was complaining about it on Twitter. And so this this was like a self-selected group of uh, of, of geniuses who decided we, the, only, the only way to make this selection is to uh, go in person and, and sit uh, next, next to people watching TV. Anyway... Let's imagine that there's a conspiracy in the committee room among a group of people that wants to expand the college football playoff to eight teams, or maybe even 16. What would you do to make that happen? You would restrict the playoff in such a way that basically every stakeholder is mad. So the Pac-12 and the Big 12 never get in. The 
group of five teams, whatever kind of juice they have, they never get in and they're going to be pissed off and want to change the system. The SEC is actually mad this year because they, you know, for some reason, Texas A&M thinks that it deserves to get in. You know, they could have maybe left out Ohio State and made the big the Big Ten mad. That would have been a little bit over the top. But it seems to me like they're maybe doing... <laughs> I don't think they're actually doing this, but if they were doing this on purpose, it would look pretty much the same. It's like, this is the argument to expand the playoff to eight teams. We're like, oh, well, I guess we're, we're so bad at this. You just need to give us more teams and then, you know, we'll, we'll have to let everybody in. Yeah. I think the thing is though, even if you expand the playoff and I've, I've seen people talk about expanding the playoff to eight teams as if that's going to solve the fundamental problem of college football in, in the way that it regards its postseason. And I really don't think that. And the reason is undefeated Cincinnati was number eight. They weren't even close to making the playoff. And so, like, let's say we expand the playoff to eight to include one group of five champion. All right, that solves the problem for Cincinnati. But they'll be forced to play the top seed, which will likely confirm everyone's priors about them because, I mean, that's not fair, right? Like, Cincinnati shouldn't have to open against the top-seeded team in a playoff, in an 18 playoff. They should be more of a five, six, maybe number four team, but they're never going to get that sort of a treatment. It's sort of like putting the HBCUs in the first four. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, put them up there to sacrifice against you know the top seed, and then they'll lose that way. And then what about Coastal Carolina? What about San Jose State? Like all these. The thing is, is that it's not going to correct the fundamental inferiority that that the group of five teams have within FBS. But the thing that I find confusing is that this is the same, I mean, it's a different group of people, but some of these people are like athletic directors. Like these people understand that the reason why March Madness is so popular is because you have these Cinderella teams that actually have a shot and sometimes they do really well, maybe even get to the final four, but like all the, you know, some of the, you know, you got the Christian Leitner shot or whatever, but the highlights that get played over and over again in um, you know, the March Madness compilations are like the 15 seed beating the two seed or like UMBC or whatever. And so the idea that like, oh, we're trying to maximize revenue, that seems a little bit short-sighted. I mean, like when Boise State beat Oklahoma with all those trick plays, I mean, like that compilation, it it's you know, gets played over that's like the only like non-title game bowl game that anyone <laughs> remembers ever. It's because that dude proposed after scoring the touchdown, right? Shout well, out okay, fine. Say, Cincinnati, you can get in if, like, somebody proposes to a cheerleader. Like, I that's think that's, fine. that's the rule. They would probably yeah. be, be okay with that. <laughs> I mean, I th- the difference, of course, Josh, is that the disparities in football are far greater than the disparities in basketball. So to have Alabama play a much weaker team if there was a 16 these, team These group of five teams are competitive. When they played major conference teams in bowl games, you're not going to be able to think of like a massive blowout. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it goes back to, you know, we don't have the same respect for those group of five programs like UCF a few years ago or Boise State during its run about a decade ago or Tulane, you know, in 1998 with Sean King. So um, it's like we're always going to be fundamentally trying to trying to come up with reasons why those teams don't stack up. And we'll say, oh, well, they can't hold up. I mean, you know, obviously Alabama is much more much a much more powerful team. And it's just, I just don't see us ever sort of getting over that, which is why I think, much like the Knight Commission, 
that the power of five and the group of five level should split. Like, I mean, you just can't tell me that Coastal Carolina is playing for the same thing every year that, you know, even Iowa State is. You know, so like why like why keep up the pretense? It doesn't I don't know, because it's in Coastal money. Carolina's interest to occasionally play a game that someone will pay them a couple million dollars to show up for. Um, and, uh, you know, that, again, look, there's no central management in this sport. This is governed by self-interest by the most powerful brokers. Um, and, and it's been 25 plus years that the second tier of schools has banged on the door and not been allowed in. So either we just continue this, and I don't think you can do a 16-team tournament or a 32-team tournament. They can't. How many games can you play? It's going to at some point require schools to give up regular season games in order to play more playoff games. So I, I don't know that there's any resolution. I mean, yeah, talking about permutations is is a fun thing to do, and eight teams with one or at least one um, group of five school in it would solve something. The Pac-12 and the Big 12, which have been screwed over year after year, would get a seat at the table. But does that yeah, mean there's the gonna be an A team playoff. There's gonna be an A team playoff. Yeah. Well, that's how that's something. how this has all happened over the last two decades plus. There's been this incremental concessioning by the biggest powers. And it's gonna happen again. Well, Let's end this by talking about all the bowl games that are getting canceled. I'm sorry to report there's going to be no Frisco Bowl. Not even a Red Box Bowl, a Bahamas Bowl, or not a Quick Lane Bowl. Bowl. Not mean, an Independence Bowl. I mean, that's a big bowl. Not an Independence Bowl in, in Shreveport. The um, Guaranteed is, Rate Bowl has been canceled, everybody. Chuck Culpepper, Chuck Culpepper of the Washington Post noted that this bowl has gone from the Copper Bowl to the Insight.com Bowl to the Insight Bowl to the Buffalo Wild Wings Bowl to the Cactus Bowl to the Cheez-It Bowl to the Guaranteed Rate Bowl. That's where where are the Insight.com Bowls of my, of my youth? Bowls. Yeah. Um, but the, the trend here that's the most fascinating to me, like the reason all these bowl games are getting canceled, like you've got, like I think South Carolina is like two and eight and they're going to a, a bowl game. They're, they're not doing the whole like winning team thing this year. It's just like nobody wants to play in a bowl game. Boston they're just College acknowledging these, They're just acknowledging these are exhibitions for, is what, what they've always been, right? But like now it's official. Like everybody understands that these games don't mean anything. Well, they're also acknowledging that these games are even more meaningless than the actual <laughs> regular season games. You know, they're acknowledging that it's too dangerous to go play in these and it's not worth it. And that was yeah. probably the case for the regular season games, too. I mean, isn't this kind of... I mean, we're on the precipice of something weird here because, I mean, you've got major, legit programs that opted out of the postseason. you got USC, Nebraska, Florida State, Michigan State, Washington, a whole bunch of other schools. Boise State, know, Minnesota. Boston College, Pitt. Yeah, I mean, like, these are, you know, foundational programs of the last 30, 40 years that are saying... Nah, we're not even really worth it right now. And I know that this is a sort of an unprecedented year in unprecedented circumstances, but the whole thing of bowl games is that they are branding opportunities for your school, right? Like, I mean, that's why they're created for these these advertisers and for the schools. The belief is that oh, we'll have we'll have this you know this TV time and we can broadcast you know our school and and pitch our school to an audience of new people. Well, they're mostly they're created just like, yeah, like so some locals can pocket a lot of money but yeah. yeah 
I'm getting a bit uh, frustrated with Fats this year because you're, you're acting like uh, there, there's there's logic here. You're like with every kind of move we've made in the conversation, we're like, well, obviously they had to do this. Obviously they had to do that. It's like Nebraska was like trying to like go to the Supreme Court basically to get them to even play football this year and was but acting that's my like point, Josh that like in the end. Even Nebraska is acknowledging that the whole thing is bullshit and unsafe. Go to a bowl I game? Think, eh, why bother? You think, you think Nebraska is acknowledging that this is unsafe? That that's the reason they're not going to play? If the, if they well, why aren't they playing? The, why aren't they going to a bowl know. game? No, you I don't know. I don't know. They're not playing because they have nothing to play for because they're bad and they don't want to get exposed. They don't want to play another game and Scott Frost get his ass kicked on national television and they have to deal with that in off season, so they're just like, ah, oh, fuck it. But like that shows you again it's how all meaningless this all is. Yeah, it's all it's it's not meaning it's not meaningless. It's just all contingent. It's like how the Big Ten has rules until Ohio State needs them to change the rules, and then it's how it's unsafe until oh maybe we'll make the playoff. So I guess we're we're gonna play, and it's oh it's suddenly oh well I guess. We, you know, uh, bowl, bowl games are just, ex- oh, bowl games are exhibitions now because we're going to get our, our ass kicked. Like, there's no kind of, you know, hypocrisy policing in all kind of aspects of life is an ultimately um, frustrating and fruitless endeavor. But it is just remarkable how, whether it's schools or athletic directors or coaches, can present themselves as having some sort of value system or like, you know, belief beyond just what happens to be the most convenient for them in that exact moment. Oh dear, we can't play the Rose Bowl because the positivity rate in Los Angeles is 15%. Let's move it to Dallas where the COVID positivity rate is 17%. And let's let in 16,000 and a half fans to the game. Yeah. I'm, I'm like Kyle Pitts. So like, I'll, I'll I'll catch it on TV, guys. See you later. <laughs> Good luck. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Thirty-five years ago, when I was a $13 a day local hire for the Associated Press in Athens, I wrote a story about the growth of Greek basketball that was so good that the International Herald Tribune printed it and gave me a byline. I've mentioned this journalistic landmark before in an afterball in 2017 about the induction of Greek League star Nick Gallus into the Hall of Fame, and I bring it up now because I'm feeling that weird nationalist pride that I feel when Greek dudes do well in sports, like Nick Gallus and others who were drafted but didn't play in the NBA, Panayotis Yanaikis, Panayotis Fasulas, Fanis Christodoulou, and the handful who did, like Jake Tsakalidis and my almost namesake, Andonis Fotsis. If you had told me back in 1985, though, that a Greek player would sign a five-year contract worth $228 million with an NBA team and that he would be an immigrant to Greece from Nigeria, 
I would, of course, not have believed you. There were only three hardwood courts in Greece when I wrote that story, and Greece isn't exactly hospitable to non-Greeks. The government didn't give Giannis citizenship until he was about to fly to New York for the NBA draft. But everyone, Greek fans, Bucks fans, and most of all, Giannis Antetokounmpo and his family are happy now. Anyway, Joel, Giannis could have hit the free agent market after this season, but he chose to stick with so-called small market Milwaukee. His signing has lots of repercussions for the league. What do you make of the decision? Real quick, Stefan, you didn't, you didn't bring the, the Greek Shaq. What was that guy? Sophoris? Oh, Shortsianidis. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's that's so the first Greek basketball player Shortsianidis, right. Yeah, that guy. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that guy. That's right. Yeah. He's a legend. Shaq, but, yeah. <laughs> but no, you know, so um, I think anybody that's listened to this podcast more than a few times know that first and foremost, I'm a fan of Team Run It Back. Um, and so I think superstars and front offices panic way too often and way too early. Like when a team falls short two or three years, you know, and, you know, they don't make it to a championship, they don't think about the ideas and or they don't think about the ways in which a championship is dependent on a range of factors, including luck. And so the Raptors happened to fall into a championship a few years ago because the Warriors were so beat up. The Lakers caught some breaks this year because of the unprecedented circumstances. And we always sort of underestimate the impact that injuries have on finals in years past. So when I look at what Giannis did, I'm wondering if somebody said, hey, look, man, you run this town. Like, this is your franchise. We can try to bring in the players you want. We can run this organization in the way that you want. We'll build around you. You have a connection with these people here. You won't just, you're not just another guy. You are fundamental. You are part of the foundation of this franchise. How about you just hold on and see what you can do? You're 26 years old. You're not even in your prime yet. So you just never know how things are going to fit. So, he, you know, Giannis probably looked at the lay of the land, saw with some roster improvement. They brought in Drew Holiday, maybe a different approach, a few breaks. Maybe the Bucks are in the finals next year. So that's why, that, I mean, so fundamentally, I'm happy with it because I think that the Bucks may get a breakthrough. They may experience a breakthrough in the next few years and that Giannis doesn't have to go anywhere else to win a championship. And there's all sorts of other reasons but uh, for why he might stay. But Josh, I assume you would have wanted him to sign with New Orleans next offseason or something. Tulane! I think that we can hold a couple different ideas in our head at once, which is that I think we're happy when players have the ability through free agency or whatever mechanism to play in places that they want to play, that that's generally a good thing. But it's also nice when guys stay on the same team because they decide that's the right thing for them. And I think on balance for fans of the league, it is good when players stay on the same team, even if we don't want them to be forced to do so against their will. Like, it's nice to have this kind of long-term story of Giannis growing in Milwaukee and Giannis getting a chance to run it back in Milwaukee. Like, that is you establish this relationship with a team and a player and a city and a storyline. And that's, that's good to have those stories that you want to come back to and check in on every year. And you mentioned Giannis kind of running the town. And in these stories that have come out since he agreed to sign the Supermax deal, you get the sense that he's a benevolent dictator, that he 
appears to have a good working relationship with ownership and the general manager um, there that um, my, the, the best line I saw in any story was Joe Varden in The Athletic, where Varden is talking to Giannis and, he's, and he tells Giannis, there's nothing he could have asked for from the team where the answer was no. And Giannis's response was, if I ask them for custard every day at 6 a.m. before I go to practice, they're going to say yes. They'll agree to that. You believe so? And Varden's response was, are you kidding? Lazary would have built a cop's frozen custard factory inside the arena if you thought it would help, which is true. But it, but Giannis apparently thinks that they would not have given him custard at 6 a.m., which is a very naive but charming uh, belief of his. He would have loved to work at BuzzFeed in 2014. They had a uh, you know, custard <laughs> machine. Yeah, well, so if it doesn't work out with the Bucks, Giannis could go work at I mean, BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed yeah, did have right. a lot of VC money. They could have maybe That's given right. him $228 <laughs> million. Um, so back, back to this, this question of like, Giannis and feeling comfortable there. A lot of the stories have also mentioned he got there when he was 18. He learned to drive a car there. He learned what a smoothie was famously when he was in Milwaukee. And like, forgive me if this is stereotyping. I haven't, I think there might be some truth to it, but we should talk it out. Is that when you have an international player, whether it's like Giannis or Dirk, maybe like Luca in the future, it seems to me like this might be an opportunity for like a smaller market team to get a guy when he's younger who does who doesn't necessarily he wants to play in the NBA doesn't necessarily like be fixated on like New York or LA and then from like a marketing perspective I don't know if like people like Giannis is an international superstar do people really care whether he's in Milwaukee versus like a big market city and like it's the first place he's ever like spent a lot of time in the US and so it makes sense to me that a guy who grew up you know, in Greece is going to be like, Milwaukee seems like a pretty great place to be, like a good place for my family. Whereas somebody who grows up in the U.S. May, maybe is like more familiar with other places in America and might have more wanderlust. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. I mean, I'm trying to think now of an example of a European player who had to switch from a smaller market to a bigger market to satisfy whatever personal drive, ego, marketing perception, marketing reality um, and I'm kind of striking out. I mean, Dirk is a perfect parallel. Well, he's somebody. the guy who has the record for most 21 seasons for the same franchise. That's an right. all-time NBA record. And, Paul and, and I didn't think get for, got, didn't get forced to the Lakers, right? He he didn't he didn't force his way to the Lakers, right? He was just he traded. got, traded, he got so, traded a bunch of times. But yeah, yeah. I, I don't get the sense that like he was a guy who's like yeah. you have to. I mean, it's also a smaller sample of international sure. players who would have had the power and ability to like force themselves into any market. They're just been, I mean, maybe we'll see that in the but, future. Yeah, but Giannis is a different kind of human, clearly. I mean, this feels like a guy that is eternally grateful for the things that happened to him. I mean, he was in, he and his family were illegal in Greece. They were treated like shit, as I mentioned, by the government. He didn't start playing basketball until he was 13. He was selling fake watches on the street in central Athens. Um, and five years later, he is spotted by um, a couple of scouts and agents, and he ends up getting drafted when he was playing for like the second team for his club in Greece, getting drafted into the NBA. You know, but one of the other endearing quotations from Giannis after he signed was that he consulted his mom constantly during the process. 
I talked to my mother, asked her, did she want to move? She said no. So I said, okay, cool. I'm just going to sign the deal then. This is the place I want to be, he said. This is my home. This is my city. I want to represent Milwaukee, and I want to do this for the next five years. Um, and I think that's just who this guy is. He is naive in some ways, just the way he comes off like a kid. Like, he's really genuine. I mean, there are these wonderful clips on YouTube of him singing the Greek national anthem with fans after games with his brother and stuff. I don't see Giannis as sort of someone who was, is there, was calculating like New York, Miami, LA, New York, Miami, LA, that I think there's a, a genuineness to his personality that influenced this. I, I can sort of see that maybe, I, I, I don't think that you get to be great in basketball without becoming more calculating and more um, aware of your growing power. And I think it's, I do think that there's some truth that Giannis is grateful to Milwaukee, but also that it's advantageous for him to have people believe that he is so grateful um, to Milwaukee and that it is, you know, that he believes in sticking with the small market team. Like, I think that that's like really good marketing. I mean, how grateful would he be if like he was like Anthony Davis and the Pelicans could never put a good roster right. around him? Right. And, and keep in mind, it wasn't but about a decade ago that Kevin Durant was signing an extension with you know, the Oklahoma City Thunder, and everybody was like, see, like, that's the anti-LeBron. He wanted to re-up and stay with the Thunder, and it was supposed to herald a new age. You know, it was the antidote to LeBron and the, the player empowerment movement, and then he left. But the one thing, and we, since we're sort of talking this out a little bit, that I do think that him being a foreign-born player may help is that he didn't grow up knowing any of these guys. You know what I mean? So, like, he he did he played he was playing ball in Greece when all of his peers were playing at the Nike Peach Jam or you know what I mean a <laughs> Montverde Academy was playing against Oak Hill so he he sort of knew to like elite American basketball culture so it wouldn't necessarily mean that he would have a desire to team up like Kawhi did with Paul George or LeBron did with Anthony Davis because he got here on his own he charted his own course and he may say I've had a lot of success with this. Why do I need to team up with anybody else? A foreign-born player, effectively what I'm saying is that might have a different approach to our rings culture and, you know, superstar team culture. Like, he may just feel this way for now. I mean, he's also rejected the opportunity to get closer to these players now when he's on their level. Like, he's declined chances to work out with the, you know, LeBrons of the world in the offseason and... But it's a really good point, Joel, about the Durant thing and how Giannis is going to get slotted into this, like, oh, he's a good person and, like, an, an antidote to all the, like, these these greedy players who just want to leave and win championships, which I think he doesn't deserve and the other players don't deserve to have him kind of typecast in that oversimplified sort of way. Like, I do feel like if the Bucks weren't good, then it would be better for him or make more sense f- of for him to leave. He's also got a player option in this deal and he could force a trade like next year if he, if he wanted to, and, and maybe he will. And so I, I think a lot of this is going to be decided down the road, but, and like, maybe this is a way to tran- transition to James Harden. But like, I think at a bare minimum, you can say that while he's been in Milwaukee and based on everything we've heard from him and everything we've heard about him, he seems to be like a guy 
that you can build an organization around and not have a lot of drama. And he's going to like act like pretty normal. And like, that is like the ultimate lottery ticket in the NBA because like to have a guy who's like as great as he is and also is like kind of (laughs) normal. I mean, how lucky is Milwaukee? And that's and, and I and I would add to that, Josh, that by signing with Milwaukee now, if they don't win a championship in the next two, three, four years, and Giannis, when he's thirty, decides to go to another team in pursuit of a ring, I don't think anyone will begrudge him that. And I think LeBron has laid the groundwork for that. You know, his first time going to Miami, that did not go over well. The second time, deciding to go to L.A., nobody was nobody was upset. So I think LeBron has sort of recalibrated for a lot of fans the feeling of, um, of your superstar walking away. You know, if it's time when he's 30, who's going to say Giannis shouldn't have a shot at a ring with whoever it ends up being, whoever the, you know, the star of the moment is four or five years from now. Can we talk about Tim McMahon's story about James Harden and him trying to force his way out of Houston? There's a a bunch of anonymous quotes in there from former Rockets coaches. You say the culture and the organization is whatever James wants, that he's allowed to do everything. There's talk about Westbrook being frustrated that Harden was always late and that, you know, basically that the organization kind of gave itself over to him. The counter argument there, which to his credit, Tim McMahon makes in the piece is like the Rockets were really not going anywhere and weren't that good before Harden got there. And since he's been there, they've been great and a contender. And so, you know, it's unclear that the decisions that they've made around getting Harden or how to manage Harden have been, you know, to the detriment of the franchise. It seems like the opposite. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's the Rockets are the only team that have made the playoffs in the last eight seasons, and that's in large part because of him. And I just think we create a lot of narratives around athletes and teams when they don't win without understanding how difficult it is to win. Only one team can win every year. And so basically what you're asking me to, to believe is that James Harden created this sort of poisonous, you know, a culture of irresponsibility in Houston, and that's why they didn't topple the Golden State Warriors? Like, really? Like, am I supposed to believe that if James Harden had just showed up on time to practice all the time and didn't party occasionally in Vegas on road trips, that that would have made them better than the Golden State Warriors of the last four years. I just don't think so. Now, it would be good and it would be better if James Harden had a sort of monastic approach to basketball, if he just went back to his house after every practice and, you know, ate right and didn't go to the club, especially in a pandemic. But that's just not who he is. But stardom in any realm makes you weird and makes you kind of... You can bend the world to your will. When you're when you're rich like that, and why wouldn't you? Like it's really hard to not, you know what I mean? If people are catering to you like that, and it must be it must be challenging for the people around him to have to deal with that. But like that's what makes the NBA so fascinating as like a just from a personality standpoint is that among the the sports that we really follow closely, 
It's the only one that is at once a team game, genuinely. You can't win without a team. And is also so controlled by superstars and like having the best players. So you have to have a good team and you have to have the best player or one of the best players to win. And that creates these conditions for like interpersonal drama and strife. And, you know, that's what we're seeing in Houston now. And it's almost like a miracle when all of the things like combine together, because we're talking before last season about how this Lakers thing wasn't going to work, about how they brought in all these guys who seemed old and didn't seem like they were going to work and couldn't, you know, and so, and yeah, and, and also just because of what you were saying, Joel, because of the fundamental fact that only one team can win when, when you don't even do anything wrong, there's still going to be a narrative about how you screwed up. Right, absolutely. I mean, the Bucks, like, they didn't make it this year. They didn't even advance to the Eastern Conference Finals, you know, and it was like, oh, God, Giannis is going to leave, and, you know, they don't play Giannis enough minutes, and everything is right. But, like, all of a sudden, you know, he resigns, and they're like, oh, well, you know, the Bucks, you know, the things fall right. They may contend for a championship next year. Also, I just want to make it clear, I don't endorse James Harden's behavior, okay? Like, <laughs> I don't think that he's a good teammate. I don't think that he's a good leader. But I also just think that, come on, I mean— you know, if it took some sort of toll on his playing, I might feel a little bit differently. But, you know, I don't necessarily... Maybe he'd have a little more that. endurance in the fourth quarter. Yeah, fair point, fair <laughs> point. I do think that the Rockets, though, are, are making the right move by not catering to his every whim anymore. And maybe it will portend good things for the franchise. That, like, maybe, you know, he spends some time in this new culture at, uh, at the Rockets and that maybe it pays off. We'll see. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about Major League Baseball declaring at last that the Negro Leagues are a major league. What does that mean practically? And is it too little, too late from Major League Baseball? Terrace, talk about that. You have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. All right, speaking of international players who just signed enormous contracts to stay with the teams that drafted them, Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz just signed a $200-plus million deal to stay in Utah. And... Rudy Gobert. He's had kind of an up and down year. Way back on March 2nd, um, nine days before Gobert tested positive for COVID and the NBA went on hiatus, the three of us recorded a segment on, and I quote us, how the sports world might deal with a pandemic. We talked about how events had started to be postponed in other countries, but the leagues in the U.S., they showed no signs of canceling anything yet. We mentioned an early example of an athlete speaking out, that being C.J. McCollum tweeting that he would abstain from signing autographs because of concerns about germ-borne illness. If you go back and listen to that segment, you will hear three people who had absolutely no idea what was about to happen to sports or our country or ourselves and our lives. Now, almost seven months later, 318,000 people have died of COVID in the United States by the official count. 
that number makes everything that's happened in sports feel inconsequential by comparison. But the changes in sports, like the changes in every part of the world we're living in, they do have meaning. They've meant lost jobs. They've meant lost rituals, new definitions of what normal and abnormal mean to those of us who play sports and watch sports and care about sports. And so we're coming to the end of the year, second to last show of 2020 for us. We wanted to step back and think about what's changed and whether those changes will stay with us in 2021 and beyond. And so in this segment, we're going to talk about um, the changes that will persist and the ones that we think will not stay with us. Um, Stefan, why don't we divide this into categories and something that has been a monumental shift in sports this year is um, the way that players have used their voices, um, the way that players have seen their roles in society and in their leagues. And so what do you think about those changes and whether they will or will not persist? I think first, like when we talk about 2020 and the future of sports, I don't think we can or should separate the pandemic from the social justice movement. Um, The crises, I think, clearly influenced one another in sports. Um, For instance, the obvious ones, the fact that the NBA and the WNBA athletes were already gathered in one place. And the same was true of the men's and women's pro soccer leagues. I think even if they were still Zooming and conference calling mostly when they were in those bubbles, it allowed them to act more effectively and more decisively. It was like a built-in sense of physical solidarity, you know, like they were trapped in a mine and they had no choice but to act collectively. We saw that when NBA teams led by the Bucks refused to play a playoff game after the shooting of Jacob Blake in Wisconsin in August. Other teams across sports followed. And that was genuinely unprecedented. Athletes taking over their sports, refusing to play. Major League Baseball games were were canceled. Naomi Osaka refused to play a semifinal match in a tennis tournament. So the tennis tournament agreed to take the whole day off rather than have her drop out. The Pac-12 college athletes who banded together to demand change, that was huge. I think, Joel, you're going to talk more about that when we talk about college sports. The pandemic and social justice movements it's made, they both made athletes more conscious of, I think, the secondary role that they play, that sports don't matter as much as we think, but at the same time that they have this perverse cultural influence that sports wield outsized power. And they tapped into that because of these two things more than ever. I don't think leagues and governing bodies are going to be able to or even necessarily want to shove that back into, into the bottle. I think athletes have a sense of their power now, and I think we're going to see more of that going forward. Yeah, I definitely think in college, uh, especially, that there's going to be more of an effort to strengthen strengthen players' labor rights, uh, and the fight for that is only going to get more intense. That they're going to make more demands about their work environment, um, about post career compensation, and even deciding whether to play some games at all. Because as we're seeing right now in the bowl season, some of these games are a lot more optional than we thought, and some of the guys don't want to play in them at all. So where it's been more of an individualized thing before where, you know, Leonard Fournette and Christian McCaffrey decide not to play in a bowl game, we may see more teams and players say, you know what, there's no reason for us to play in this game. And yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about going back to the when we had, um, when we were discussing the We Are United movement that that that, that came out of the Pac-12 um, over the summer. And, 
you know, we were talking to them about what was going on and they talked about, oh, you know, we've been organizing, like we've been, you know, Zoom and everything else has allowed us to collaborate and organize in a way that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. And we've got time. I don't think you're going to see those networks go away because there are people in there that realize their opportunities. So whether it's Ramogi Huma, you know, um, you know, working on unionization efforts or, or other people um, just in, in the academic space that want to lend these athletes a hand and say, hey, look, clearly, as you've seen this year, uh, these institutions, you know, from the conferences to, you know, school leadership, they're not, they don't necessarily have your best interests at heart. I think players are going to be much more open to that and they see that they have a little bit more power and that they can push for more things. So I, I definitely think that will change. I don't think I'm just being hopeful about it like I've been in the past. Like, I think that that's something that is here to stay and that, you know, college athletics is going to have to reckon with that at some point. Josh, what did you, what did you think? So I think that's a, th- a thing that went a little under the radar, and Joel, you and I talked a little bit about this off the show, was that Utah State canceled its last game of the college football season, not because of any issue around um, the pandemic, but because players were upset about how the coaching search had gone in that program and some comments that had allegedly been made about the interim coach that upset the the players. And I feel like in any other season, the idea that college football players refused to play a game and just sat out and said, we're not playing because of the way that their program was run and the way that the administration had handled a search would have been the top story everywhere. And so what this shows is, I think, a couple things. I think the thing that it shows short-term was that the schedule was in so much flux and the games were being lost kind of willy-nilly and you didn't know who was playing and why or why not, that something like this could just get lost. But it also shows that, as you guys have been saying, the players now realize these games don't have to be played. Um, They also realize that they have the power to decide whether they're played or not. And that at least, and and the, this is the thing that hasn't yet been decided, whether this is a year where just anything goes and that there won't be any consequences. Like nothing's going to happen to these Utah State players, but maybe if they did it next year, maybe they would lose their scholarships. I don't know. Maybe like if there's not a pandemic and everything doesn't feel so fungible, then everything would be different. And that's, I think, where the questions for me lie about whether this is going to persist about whether when we go back to games on the schedule being more in cement than in sand, whether everyone's attitudes start to change. And then I think, you know, if you look back at the generation of athletes that came up in the sixties behaved much differently around civil rights and social justice than the athletes that came up in the 80s. And so I think this generation that played, the guys that played in maybe even in high school or college or pros this year, they'll never forget that and will be radicalized by it. But will athletes who are like 12 or 13 years old now, who aren't even born now, well, they have a totally different, I mean, that's like so far in the future that it's not even worth saying it. But I just, I think we need to limit ourselves to, you know, th- this generation, I feel like will not forget this and everything else, everything else to me seems up in the air. Well, then and I think what follows from that, Josh, is will the people that have 
the ability to negotiate on behalf of athletes and leagues um, bake in these kinds, this kind of power? What is going to happen when the professional sports leagues renegotiate collective bargaining agreements? Will there be more push for shorter seasons? Will there be more push to revamp punishment for athletes who do certain things? Is there what kinds of negotiated, built-in um, reflections of both the social justice movement and the protection of athletes, whether it's for their health for their desires for how much to play, for how they share the wealth going forward? Will there be some sort of strengthening of the labor rights movement among professional athletes and I think also college athletes? That's a good spot to transition, Joel. I think the next category we should talk about is how leagues are going to change or not change going forward. Stefan just mentioned shorter regular seasons. I think one thing that is going to change, and we got into this a little bit, in college football, but I think expanded playoffs that went into place as a quote unquote temporary measure in baseball. I think we're probably going to, that's probably going to be permanent. The NBA added the play in games. There's extra playoff spots in the NFL. I think some of it made sense. I think some of it is opportunistic by the leagues and looking for an opportunity to expand these post seasons and just drive more revenue and get more eyeballs on these games that's like it feels a little bit kind of i don't know if crass is the right word but like well we've just been talking about with the players like stuff that's like you know around like civil rights and and these really kind of big and weighty issues and now like transitioning to the leagues and talking about ways to like using this opportunistically to like reshuffle the way they do business. I mean, maybe it's appropriate to talk about that when we're talking about leagues. Well, I can't help but wonder if they're going to try to come up with ways to juice interest in this, because one thing that I imagine everybody involved with sports and, um, and, and television are probably flummoxed by is how like bad the ratings have been this year. And now, maybe you can explain it away by saying, well, this is an election year and people's, you know, attention, attention was drawn in other way areas. And, you know, also, all the sports I mean, were competing against each other. All the sports were competing against each other. Also, it's absolutely fucking miserable in the country right now. There's, you know, people are like, you know, devastated in ways that probably don't make sports, you know, necessarily the getaway, the escape. Right. Uh, sports don't give us the in. joy that they that, that we thought they would. Right. But I, I still can't help but but think that they're probably going to continue to, like you said, tinker with playoffs or, or finding ways to make every game matter in ways that they don't now because now we know that like the baseball regular season is ridiculous like so many games we don't need to play same in basketball so maybe we might see uh in the future you know how they had like the sort of the round robin play-in for the nba playoffs right you know where a couple teams are playing and they're trying to create some tension around it and say maybe we'll see more more things like that because uh these ratings you know, it's not just because players were protesting, you know, Black Lives Matter. I know a lot of people, you know, seem to think that that was what drove down the ratings. But ratings are down pretty much every sport, every major event this year. And I don't think that they can continue in that way. And so sort of figuring out ways to juice the ratings and juice excitement by creating artificial stakes in these games. Like, I definitely think that's going to be something we're going to see more of going forward. I mean, I think one way to juice the ratings, Stefan, 
is to just change what we think of as ratings because like as a society we're just moving away from linear television and it doesn't particularly capture the ways in which fans consume these games and it makes sense to look at ratings because um these massive television contracts are the ways that leagues make you know most of their revenue or or a lot of their revenue and so thinking about ratings is is logical but like as we move forward that revenue mix for leagues is going to shift it will have to necessarily as television diminishes in importance yeah and 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 it's not as if both leagues and networks and other distribution platforms aren't thinking about that now so the the pandemic is absolutely forcing change in the future ways that we consume sports. And I just don't think we know what the answers are yet. I think the pandemic will be responsible for accelerating certain changes, but we're not going to know that just yet. Don't you guys think in the game experience is going to change? By which I mean, when, maybe not the game experience. What I'll say is that one thing that won't change, and you, you guys tell me if you agree with this or not, I completely underestimated the extent to which people want to go to games and be at games and enjoy the in-game experience. And I think that's going to come back in a huge way. Like when we get out of this, that like they're not going to have problems selling tickets that we're going to probably see, you know, sort of a renaissance of like in-game entertainment and, and, you know, live game entertainment because people miss that stuff, man. People, I mean, people are risking their lives to eat at terrible restaurants right now. So, like, God forbid, you know, they get a chance to go see, you know, NBA games, MLB games, the the, the big college game in town. But may, I don't know. I mean, that's I, an interesting argument because there is a lot of catastrophizing pre-pandemic, I think particularly around college sports, but also with, like, NFL and stuff that just, like, fans weren't going anymore, that, that there was this kind of, like, obsession with, like, figuring out a way to get butts and seats and the television experience is so good. So Joel, yeah, I mean, that's interesting because you would think that this would accelerate the trend away from live in-game attendance that people would get used to it. And you saw in the NBA, like in the bubble, like innovating around having better camera placement and, and whatnot and replacing some of the like high dollar seats. But I think what you're saying actually makes sense in that um, there is going to be this kind of desire to get back to quote unquote normal and old habits and this idea that like this this thing was taken away from us and so we're going to want to have it back like it used to be even if we're like even if we're like idealizing or romanticizing this thing we were kind of getting sick of before it got taken away. But can you envision yourself sitting? even after a vaccine sitting in a crowded arena with people screaming at the top of their lungs, spraying aerosol all over you. How long does it take before we are genuinely, we were before we genuinely feel safe doing something like that. I'm, I mean, look, there are a lot of people that are going to go. There are a lot of people going to sporting events right now. 30,000 people are going to Dallas Cowboys games. I don't underestimate the desire of the American public to, to take basic risks in their lives to do things. But still, you need a, a pretty large segment of the fan public that's going to say, yeah, I'm willing to go watch, you know, Penn basketball with 3,000 other people or a game with 90,000 other people in the Rose Bowl. 
Well, I mean, the cities and the professional sports franchises are sort of preparing for it. I mean, right now the Tennessee Titans are angling for someone to cover their upgrades. The Cleveland Browns just got the city to approve $12 million for repairs and is considering $50 million more over the next 10 years. Hartford is committing $100 million to state-funded renovations for its arena. Um, Raleigh, Wait, Har- Hartford? Hartford, yeah. Raleigh, Boston, and Montreal... Uh, and some other cities are considering new stadiums or soccer-specific stadiums and other projects for, for baseball. So, like, the public money is not stopping going towards these stadiums and arenas. And so, to me, that signals to me that they seem to think that there's going to be some sort of market for it going forward. Or they're at least going to spend money on it if, it, if there isn't, either way. But they're preparing for it one way or another. Uh, why don't you, the listener, if you have thoughts on... Um, any of the stuff that we talked about or anything that we didn't talk about, email us at hangup at slate.com. What are the things that you think will or won't change slash persist? And maybe we can revisit this in our year-end show next week, December 28th. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls. And I think, Joel, we got to honor your memory. Bringing up the Greek shack, Sophocles Sorzanitis. Oh, yeah. My favorite Greek player of all time, even over Giannis. I remember the American pronunciation of his name from from watching him in the Olympics and stuff being Sophocles Schwarzenitis. Schwarzenitis. <laughs> yeah. Um, he had it a is career, one of the all-time man. great names. It is a great name. And he had a great career. Born in Cameroon, Greek father. Started playing professionally in Greece when he was 15 in the year 2000. Played for all the great Greek teams, Olympiacos. Perhaps a testament to the lack of depth in the Greek leagues, but that's okay. <laughs> Maccabi Tel Aviv. Drafted by the Clips in 2003. Still under contract. That was back when you could be drafted out of Europe and you wouldn't go for like five years. In his case, it was seven years. He goes to the Summer League. Clips uh, unimpressed, according to Wikipedia. They trade his draft rights to the Hawks in a sign-in trade for Willie Green in 2012. 2014, draft rights traded to the Thunder for Thabo Cephalosha, the rights to Yorios Printesis and cash considerations. And as, uh, as timing would have it, Shorts Anitis uh, just announced his retirement 11 days ago. Tell people what his uh, height and weight are. So 6'10 in shoes, according to Wikipedia, official playing weight was lift listed at 354. That's 161 kilograms for those of you in the European Basketball League. A large, large Svelte. individual. Svelte, 354. So Played on bad. the national team. 20-year career. Gotta love it. Josh. Josh that guy. I thought yeah. the Mediterranean diet was, you know, 
treat you a little bit better than that, but uh, maybe not. <laughs> Josh, what's your Sophocles? Schwarzenitis. My Schwarzenitis um, is uh, congratulating the New York Jets, who beat the LA Rams 23-20 to to claim their first victory of the season, moved to 1-13 and on the year. Also, shame on the New York Jets, who beat the LA Rams 23-20 to to claim their first victory of the season and moved to 1-13 and on the year. The Jets are now tied with the Jaguars for the worst record in the league and the right to the first pick in the NFL draft, which means choosing potentially Clemson quarterback Trevor Lawrence. The Jags look like they'll have the tiebreaker, though, um, which is based on like the fact that they have the weakest strength of schedule. So it's looking more likely the Jacksonville will be the ones to take Lawrence if they both end up 1-15, the Jags and the Jets. That led the New York Post to splash the headline, Lawrence Welp, across the back page, which suggests to me, more than anything else, that some old people are employed by the New York Post, which, good for them. But back to the subject of unlikely victories and draft tiebreakers and the consequences therein. Joel, remember Michael Jordan? Yeah, I've heard of him. The actor? So, <laughs> yeah, he's... I don't think he's in Space Jam 2, but he's, okay. in, he's in Space Jam <laughs> 1. Jordan was the number three pick in the 1984 NBA draft, famously selected behind both Akeem Olajuwon back when he was A-K-E-E-M Olajuwon, who went to Houston, and Sam Bowie, who went to Portland via a pick that originally belonged to Indiana. The guy taken immediately after Jordan, Stefan, you remember who that was? After Michael B. Jordan? After Michael Jordan. <laughs> You're just stalling for time. I'm just going to tell you, it was Sam Perkins. Sam, Sam Perkins, right. Also North Carolina, big smooth. Sam Perkins went to Dallas, but Dallas took Perkins using a pick that had belonged to Cleveland. The Cavs owner, Ted Stepien, had a habit of trading away all of their first-round picks, which led the league to adopt the Stepien rule, banning teams from dealing their first-rounders in consecutive years. And so, draft order was Houston, Indiana, Chicago, Cleveland. Back then, the NBA determined the top two picks via a coin flip between the worst teams in each conference. So it wasn't the worst teams in the league. It was the worst West team and the worst East team. The Rockets won that flip over Indiana, which meant they were in, in position to take a team. And they were in position to win the flip because, and Joel, this will upset you to hear because I know how much you hate tanking. The Rockets tanked their way to that spot. And it was the Rockets' intentional losing in 1984, reportedly, that led the NBA to instituting the draft lottery the next year. We've heard of this, and that's just what we like to call good old Houston innovation. The run and shoot, you know, the veer offense, you know, and tanking. All right. Back to the subject at hand. If the Rockets had not tanked, then, very plausibly, the Los Angeles Clippers would have ended up in the top two because the Clippers were the team that finished with the second worst record in the Western Conference that year. Pat Williams, then the general manager of the 76ers, if you're following along. I know this is getting confusing. Pat Williams claims that if the Clippers ended up in the top two, then Michael Jordan would have ended up in Philadelphia because the Sixers owned the Clippers pick that year. Instead, the Clippers ended up in the fifth spot. Philly gets that pick, and they had to settle for 
Charles Barkley. Good draft that year. Very good draft. Okay. Back to the third and the fourth picks. The Bulls are end up at number three because they finished 27 and 55. That was one game worse than Cleveland. If they'd finished with the same record as Cleveland, there would have been another coin flip. And if mm. Cleveland had won that coin toss, then Jordan would have, would have ended up in okay. Dallas, oh. remember, because oh. the Mavericks owned the Cavs pick. Oh, there, man. Are, there are a lot of scenarios that could have led the Bulls and the Cavs to having the same record and there needing to be that coin flip. There was one game, and this is how I initially got on this because I saw it on Twitter. There was a game where the Nets' Michael Ray Richardson, who was a career 22% three-point shooter, made like a crazy contested three at the buzzer to beat the Bulls. There was another game on December 10th, 1983, when Houston's Caldwell Jones hit a three in overtime to beat the Bulls, doing so only after the refs had added another second to the clock after the clock had already expired. That led the Bulls to protest the outcome with the league office, ultimately to no avail. But imagine if the Bulls had been successful and the outcome had been reversed, the Bulls would have given themselves another win and probably cost themselves Michael Jordan. Maybe, Joel, that would have made Dallas the capital of the basketball universe. Oh, God. Thank God that, uh, thank God that didn't have to happen. I feel like, what, so Dallas got Sam Perkins. What year did they get? They think I got Roy Tarpley the next year. They, they, they had the opportunities to, to be the basketball capital, and they squandered it. So. Hey, with the 15th pick in that draft, Dallas took Terrence Stansberry from Temple. Oh, man, Terrence Stansberry. First dunk guy to- ever to do oh. the Statue of Liberty dunk. So oh, he kid. was awesome. I watched him play in college. He was amazing. Yeah. Maybe also in this alternate universe, if we're playing these games, the Bulls could have gotten Magic Johnson, who went to the Lakers because they won a coin flip over Chicago in oh, the 1979 man. draft. Mm-hmm. So this is really a pointless exercise. <laughs> also, the Jets are going to draft Sam Bowie somehow. You know, it's going to happen. <laughs> I was thinking about that last night. I was like, this game is going to be remembered. It's, if Trevor Lawrence ends up being whatever he, we think he's going to be, like that game is going to be the subject of a, if 30 for 30 still exists back then, or a special episode of Hang Up and Listen, that game <laughs> itself. What were you going to say, Stephen? Can we go back to the New York Post headline for one second? Lawrence, Lawrence Welp. Lawrence question mark Welp. And then the headline above it, is a one, W-O-N, and a boo-hoo as first win likely costs Jets shot at Trevor. A one and a boo-hoo. It refers to Lawrence Welk, who used to say a one and a two. A one and a two. How many people would (laughs) understand the Lawrence Welk part, but then the the one and a boo-hoo part? Man. I read that like 10 times before I realized what the hell was going on. I mean, do you think that the New York Post could do a Johnny Carson reference and people would rec- recognize it? Because I'd like, I mean, because Johnny Carson is old to me in the way, like, Johnny Carson is probably old to kids today in the way that Lawrence Welk was to me. Like, it was like the era of TV, like, that existed before, like, I really watched I am, TV. I am willing to bet that the New York Post did a Here's Johnny headline when Johnny Manziel 
was doing something. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> Lawrence Welk was born in 1903. I think. <laughs> I think there's, you know, the people that that understood it enjoyed it. You know, that's they're not, they're not looking for a big audience here. It's they're they're looking for uh, you know the Welkheads to really give them cred. That is our show for today. Our producer this week filling in for Melissa Kaplan is Jasmine Ellis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And please subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Do us a solid. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zomo Beatty, and thanks for listening.